All right. I want to talk to you about Enoch. Why don't you turn to Genesis chapter 5, please. The message is entitled, Enoch Never Died. Men and women have uh, attempted to delay or escape death altogether, be it with plastic surgery or the latest discovery, the latest craze on diet, whatever it is. Even as Ponce de Leon searched out the fountain of youth. We're always looking for that thing. We just don't get it. We're going to die. Now, when we're young, we don't think that's ever possible. You know, we look in the mirror and all that, but then you get over a certain hump and you look, what the heck happened? You know, me and Trudy sit in front of the mirror. What the heck? We got old. God does it very progressively, very gentle. Hopefully we get the message. We're only here for a little while. What we want to do is look at the man that, in fact, did rob the grave from physical death. His name is Enoch. Enoch um, yields for us great truths, and we want to look at him under three lenses. We'll use three different scriptures in the Bible that will give us all our information about him. First, we want to look at the man Enoch, and we will look at Genesis. Second of all, we'll look at the ministry of Enoch, and we'll look at the little epistle of Jude in that. And then the message of Enoch, which we get in the book of Hebrews. And that will give us everything that is known about Enoch. Let's begin with the man Enoch. Genesis chapter 5, verse 18 through 24. It says, Jared lived 162 years and begot Enoch. And after he begot Enoch, Jared lived 800 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Jared were 962 years and he died. If you read this chapter, he lives over here. He died. He died. He died. He died. We're going to see there's one exception. And so Enoch was a son of Jared, we're told here. Um, Jared means descent. And uh, Jared was uh, 162 years old when he begot Enoch. And what a joy it is uh, when you become a father. And, uh, and, you know, when you're running around single, you know, you, you only know the aspect of being a son or a daughter. And you have no idea of a parent. Intellectually and experience is two different things. One is reality. The other one is you don't know. Okay. It's all intellectual until you cross that line. But what a joy it is when you see your firstborn, your second, your third, or whatever it is of your children that are born. To believe that God gave us a capacity to be able to reproduce and create the, the, the combination of a man and a woman into one. So much like you, so much like her. And they bind you together. What a joy. Jared lived 800 and um, more years. And then he begot other sons and daughters in verse 19. Um, that, that's uh, what you call uh, an age gap. <laughs> you know, sometimes uh, people have kids and all of a sudden, you know, 10 years down the road, oops, <laughs> you know. But uh, it's almost raising like a second family. But when you understand the, the ages of these individuals, they all live into the hundreds. Uh, we're going to see that uh, Methuselah is the longest living, 969 years. Now, you can imagine how many kids you have. 
I mean, when I, when I was in the world, um, when I was growing up in the 60s, um, all my friends got married 17, 18 years old. I was old when I got married. I was 23. Today, the average age is 28 to 32. You can imagine when they got, and how long they live, how many kids they had. So the increase of population is nothing too far-fetched. Now, Jared is the sixth from Adam. Mark that well. Jared lived 962 years, verse 20 tells us, and then he died. There it is again. And then Jared's son Enoch should not be confused with Enoch, the son of Cain, whose name was given to a city in Genesis 4.17. So there's different Enochs. You have to, this is the seventh from Adam, as we're going to see. He's identified. We'll see that when we get to Jude. Now notice verse 21. Um, Enoch lived 62 years, and he begot Methuselah. The name Methuselah means man of the dart. But many have interpreted his name to mean when he dies, judgment will come. It's interesting because the man Methuselah was a sign to the people about God's judgment to come. And Methuselah died right when the flood came. The longest living individual, 969 years. God has always given witness to his judgment, and God has never brought judgment without giving plenty of warning and witnesses. And everybody before the flood knew that God created the world. They knew about Adam and Eve. They knew about the fall. They knew about the judgment to come. They just did not believe it. They had explained God away, I'm sure, like many of our professors and, and intellectual um, uh, people that think they're smart. Notice in verse 21 there that the man Methuselah was assigned to the people. Then, and The man Methuselah was the grandfather of Noah. Okay, you have the connection here. And the man Methuselah is the longest living man as opposed to his father, Enoch, the man who never died. He's the only exception. Now, when we get to verse 22 and 23, Enoch repented and he got saved after Methuselah's birth. We're not given details. We don't know exactly what happens, but you can relate to your own life when you got saved. There were certain things going on in your life. There were certain things that had taken place. Sometimes we were ignorant completely of them, but God was directing and bringing people into our life. But there was a very definite point in time when we were repented of our sins. This is the point here of Methuselah. It says, after he, he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God for 300 years after he begot Methuselah. So there's a very sharp contrast between what he used to be and what he is now. Just like you and I. It doesn't mean that we're sinless. It doesn't mean we're perfect. It doesn't mean that we can't fail. It means that we don't live the way we used to. We don't live a life of sin perpetually, habitually. That we fail, welcome to the club. 
That's why we have an intercessor, Jesus Christ. But we don't practice sin any longer. The Bible is very clear on that. The word walk means to traverse or move. When you're walking with your wife or your husband, you're reconciling relationship because that's the first thing this means. It communicates several things, walking. You're reconciling relationship. You're walking, you're laughing, you're joking around, you're having a great time. But if something's not right between you, mm, there's silence, there's shortness, and nope, yep, yep, I don't care. I do what you want. That's not fellowship. That's um, polite warfare. Can two walk together except they be agreed? One, one answer only. No. Amos 3.3. 3. We agree with God. When you're not agreed with God, you cannot walk with God. When you're not agreed as husband and wife or as people under, word, under the word of God, you cannot walk together. Real simple. doesn't mean we hate people. It means we have two different rules, two different revelations. The revelation of man, which is nonsense and lies, and the revelation of God, which is truth. It's real simple. But also means to be in fellowship with God, having access and benefits to God. Do you know what a, what a privilege that is? That we have fellowship with God, that God fellowships with us, we with Him, He enjoys us, we enjoy Him. We have access to the benefits. When you're in, in, a, in a reconciled relationship with, the, with your wife, your husband, your children, or any other brother or sisters in the Lord, you know, there, there's a great benefit. I get to enjoy you. I get the benefit from your life. And you get the benefit from mine. It's, it's mutual. But if you're not, then you're only there for yourself, right? And you're trying to outsmart each other who can get the most without letting them think that you're trying to get whatever it is that you're getting. That's the world, right? Listen to First John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. What an incredible verse. That that blood keeps me an ongoing fellowship with Jesus Christ. As I fail and I confess my sin, he's faithful to forgive me of my sins. And he keeps me in that fellowship based upon his atoning work. But it also means to be in, the, in a process of growing relationship with God. So in other words, any relationship, if it's not growing, it becomes horrible. You remember when you met your wife or your husband, man, your feet didn't even touch the floor. I mean, you just, wow, wow. But then, after a while, your feet touched the ground. And you said, boy, she has bad breath. He has body odor. You come down to reality, right? You've got to grow. You got to go beyond emotions. You got to go on beyond the the, the 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 happiness of the world on what you have exterior wise and and benefit for you. It's growing up. It's growing, maturing, cultivating. If I go over your house, I've told you often. I go in your backyard and I see a beautiful garden. I know that you take time to garden, turn that soil over, spray it, and pluck it, and clip it, and and fertilize it, and everything else. Beautiful. You spend time. But if I go out there and all you do is have weeds, I know you don't spend no time. Well, a lot of people do that in a relationship with God. 
with their wives, their husbands, their children. They figure it's just going to happen, you know, because I'm just such a great guy. That has to bless me. I'm just a gift of this world. Wow. It does not. We have to grow. Growing process. Listen to Ephesians 5, 15, and 16. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. So that growth develops maturity, knowing that the day is evil. Now, Paul said this almost 2,000 years ago. Now, if he said the world was evil back then, what should we say about today? In these last days. It's horribly wicked. Now, thank God, God has saved us. If he hadn't saved us, we'd be just with the world. We'd be thinking like them. We'd be propagating the same lies. Everything. You'd be drinking the Kool-Aid. You'd be a quacking duck rather than a thinking person. But it also means to live a life of obedience to God as a manner of life. It's been said that a happy child means he's an obedient child. When children are obedient, they're happy. They're not in trouble. You know, growing up, when you were in trouble, you were disobedient. Now, when I grew up, my dad dealt with me, not my mom. You didn't want to mess with my dad. You know, some of you may have seen my brother's movie. It's such a horrible representation of my dad. I cannot remember one time my dad getting mad at us as kids, but you didn't mess with him. You obeyed. And when a child is obedient, they're happy. And when they're happy, the whole house is happy. (laughs) But there has to be discipline and consequences, right? So the same with us. When we're obedient, then... God just rejoices over us. And when not, then he chastens us. He deals with us, right? Because we're his children. He wants us to obey so that we can be happy in the true sense of the biblical word. Based on our relationship with him, true joy. Not on the exterior things. It has nothing to do with feelings. It has nothing to do with emotions. It has to do with God's revelation of his word, what he says to me about him. So I obey him, as we're going to see the whole crux of of Enoch is faith, a man of faith. Ephesians 5a says, walk as children of the light. You and I have the high privilege of being light and salt to this world. Your families, some of your husbands and wives aren't saved, some of your children are not saved, co-workers. And you were in the same position and people were praying for you and they were living for Jesus Christ and God through his miraculous wisdom, worked it all together, but you still have to make a choice. No one gets saved by accident. Are we clear on that? (laughs) You must make a decision at one point in time. Where that is, how it's going to happen, God alone knows. You'll be the first to know. (laughs) But it also means to have direction and destination. So many people are just wandering in this life, they don't know where they're going. They can't detect people that lie. 
deceive. They believe everything. Because we've gone from an objective, true society to a subjective society through relativism, situational ethics, value clarifications through the Trojan horse of America, public school education, the universities. To where our leaders say things like, well, that's why we have to pass this so we can find out what's in it. That's like you saying, the guy's selling you a home and he said, well, you know, buy it and then we'll find out what's wrong with it. Then you find out that the plumbing's bad, roof is bad, the foundation's cracked. Who buys a home without examining it? Who buys a car without examining and driving it? The Word of God gives us direction and destination. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all these things shall be added unto you, Matthew 6.33. So the priority of our life is not things, is not riches, is not simply our own will, but the kingdom of God. And He gives us contentment, and He gives you ability, He gives you talents, and if you have an education, you make a good living, God doesn't begrudge you for that. He doesn't say, oh, you dirty, rotten thing, you should give your money to everybody. No. God does not believe in wealth distribution. God believes that you should be benevolent and kind as God directs you. You have the right to give all your money away, but no one has the right to take one cent by forcing you. Are we clear on that? Bless you. That's socialism. Marxism. All right? Let's be clear about that. It's not racism. It's a lie. Notice Enoch begot sons and daughters. During these 300 years, the number of sons and daughters are not, not given. A whole bunch of them, you can imagine. Even though he lives only one-third of Methuselah. Enoch lived a total of 300 years and 65 years, verse 23 tells us. A rel- relatively short time in comparison, again, um, to the catalog of chapter 5 as you move through that. But a full life with God. See, it's not, it's not how long you live. It's, it's how well you live with God. There are people that live to be 90, 100 years old, but they live for themselves, not for God, and they haven't lived at all. There are the people that live 25 years with God, and man, they have lived abundantly. It's the quality of life. How you think, how you see things, what you do, who you're following, who you're hearing, who you're obeying. What is it you're growing in? All of us. Trust me, I am not excluded from you. I am just like, just like you. Notice verse 24. Enoch was removed from the earth then. And Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. The process of his life is declared for the second time. He walked with God. You want to define a Christian? There it is. You're impressed about God and over God. That's the priority. The vertical is the most important. If you have that squared away, the horizontal will work out. But you just mess that vertical up and you put yourself in that vertical. You think you're God and you know better. You will mess yourself and everybody else up. Trust me, it doesn't take that long. The process of his life 
He walked with God. His name Enoch means dedicated, which he lived up to. Who are you dedicated to? Are you dedicated to your wife or your husband, your children? You know, when we all first got saved in the um, early 70s, you know, we were all just young and dumb. And, you know, God just saved us from the world. And we just believed God. And he started doing some works and everything else. And we were all young, having our children. And, and looking back on a lot of those young couples, you know, and they walk with God. And then all of a sudden, you know, their kid, well, you know, my kid needs to be in soccer and basketball, this and that. Nothing wrong with any of that. But that replaced God. And they take their kids to Texas and to Arizona and all over. And their kids grew up and, and they're not in church. For years and years, and then their kids get to be teens, they're in drugs, they're this and that. And now they come back to God, and they destroy their children. God, help them. Now, you can be godly, bring your children, and their children can still decide to get involved in drugs. But here's the key. You must make sure that you have not been complicit to that. Some godly people have children of the devil by their own choice. And they've had all the privileges and benefit of a Christian home. And then there's some ungodly homes that have some of the godliest kids. Because they heard the gospel and they repented and walked with God. I as a parent have to make sure I've done my part. That's my responsibility. Dedicated. He chose to walk away from the course of the world and to turn to God. That's always a good, good decision. Always, ladies and gentlemen. He chose to believe God rather than to be ensnared by the world's deception. He chose to believe that a full life with God was better than a long life without God. He chose to believe that after this life there is judgment. You can explain it away and say, well, I don't really believe it. So that's it? You're like Obama, your phone and your pen? And that makes the truth? Listen, you can say God doesn't exist. You can say there's no judgment. You're going to be the first to know that there is. The minute you give up your last breath. But then it's too late. The price of his life was that he was not found on the earth one day. Enoch was on the earth walking with God one day at a time. Just like you and I are. And Enoch one day was walking with God as usual and he kept on walking into the presence of God. And that's what's going to happen if the Lord tarries. If he doesn't come for us in the rapture before I die or you die. And may you give up your last breath. You just keep on walking with God. Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. You're there present. You're present with the Lord. So when you read uh, that Xavier Reese died, don't believe it. I moved. The proclamation of God was that God took him. Notice that. God created Enoch after his image, after his likeness. Chapter 1, verse 26. You and I are an inferior trinity. Body, soul, spirit. Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Yet, I never introduced myself. Hi, this is Xavier Body, Xavier Soul, Xavier Spirit. I'm an inferior trinity. Okay? When I die, this funky body, it's going to the ground. I've already, I've already bought my cremation. I got my urn at home. 
I'm hoping they get raptured, but if not, they're going to barbecue me. Okay? All my kids have to do is make a call. I'm going up in smokes. Is it going to be hard for God to put me together? Really? You think so? What happened to all the martyrs that were burned at the stake? You think God's up there, oh, Gabriel, I never thought about it. What about those guys that got burned up? Let's get serious, ladies and gentlemen. God made the provisions for fallen man to repent and to walk with God. God was the redeemer of his spirit, soul, and body. In the sermon on Enoch, Enoch walked with God. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan gave the following illustration. If you can get anything on G. Campbell Morgan, it is gold. Hardly anything around anymore because all there is is junk, pop psychology, Christian stuff. They're getting rid of a lot of the good books. Anything on G. Campbell Morgan, grab it. It's gold. Listen to what he says on Enoch Walk with God. A little child gave a most exquisite explanation of walking with God. She went home from a Sunday school, and the mother said, Tell me what you learn at school. And she said, Don't you know, mother? One day, they went for an extra long walk, and they walked on and on until God said to Enoch, You are a long way from home. You had better come in and stay. And he went. How simple is that? That you as a human being can have such a personal relationship with God and that you walk with Him and if He should take you, it's just like entering His presence. Right away. You continue to walk with Him. Each of us are born into this world as sinners through parents. Just like Enoch. Did you know Enoch has sinful parents? (laughs) Yes. No child is born naturally good. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me, Psalm 51, 5, David says. Wow. What does that do with the progressive? What does that do to the humanist? We say the man is good. Each of us spent a set amount of years living um, without Christ. On whatever level of sin it was, doesn't matter. Just like Enoch. Enoch lived in sin prior to repentance. He didn't know God. This goes against the teaching again of humanism and the liberal progressives who believes that man is good, the goodness of man. Well, next time somebody tells you that, let's say, well, let's, where do you get this evidence? Let's start with you. You won't have to go very far. Every person is flawed. Ask them, do you deserve heaven? They'll say, yes, you're a liar. The Bible says, liar, liars will not inherit the kingdom of God. Simple. Have you ever stolen? Well, yeah, well, no thief will enter the kingdom of God. So you're not good. Have you ever been dishonest? Go down the list. The destructive words, deeds, and actions of sinful man are the evidence of the fallen nature of man. It's all around us. Through man, good things are done. 
because we have the potential for good, but are bent towards evil. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked. Above all things, only God knows it. So because we're creating the image and likeness of God, I do have potential for good. I can help little old ladies across the street. I can help my neighbor. I can be kind to my wife, my children. But the habit of my life is to love myself, to look out for myself. It's like fishermen. Fishermen are the greatest deceivers in the world. They go out there telling the fish that they have something for them, a worm. They're liars. They have a hook. All of us have a hook in life, unless you're a Christian. Now, as a Christian, you still have the potential for the hook. You got to make sure that you do give that fish the worm, not the hook. (laughs) You got to be honest. All right? Listen to Romans 3, 10 through 12. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. In case Paul's a one-sided conversation, he can hear somebody saying, well, how about me? No, not one. Not even you. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. That word unprofitable there in Romans 3, 10 through 12, is the word for rotten produce. I used to work for Prano Markets in the 70s and the, or last, uh, the late 70, 60s and, uh, and 70s. And um, anything that we broke, you get inventory, anything else, you keep a bottle cap, you get credit for it, a can smash, whatever it is, milk, goes sour, you get credit. But produce, you get no credit. It's perishable, 100%. You buy it, it's yours. So you've got to sell it quick or it's gone. This is the word right there, unprofitable. That's how good we are. Rotten. You see, for God to accept us, you have to be perfect. Any takers this morning? (laughs) The fallen nature taints us. Each and every sinner must repent and to be saved and to to go to heaven, just like Enoch. From the very beginning, we see with Adam and Eve, now we have it here, Enoch. He made a decision to not walk contrary to God, so he repented. You made that same decision. I made that same decision. Some of you have not made that decision yet. You come, you like being here, you like what you hear, but you know, you haven't made that decision. He walked with God to be an example for his children and for others. And when he died, he spent eternity with God. So while we're here, we're example to others and hope that they might come to Christ. We're light and salt. But once I'm gone, there's nothing I can do. But you never know what your life will do in the life of others, even after you're gone. You know, uh, Schofield that wrote the Schofield Bible. You know, you have the Schofield Bible. Um, he, he was a drunk. He was a lawyer. So a drunk lawyer. Um, and, um, and, uh, and his mom just prayed and prayed and prayed for him. He never came to the Lord. She died. And he gets his testimony one time. He says, you know, Lord, if it's possible, he's praying to the Lord. He says, Lord, let my mom know that I'm saved. You know what I mean? You just never know. So you do not quit. I've told you by my friend Joey Hernandez, 40 years visiting him, 40 years praying for him, and he comes to the Lord. It's been three years while he's walking. I just had lunch with him the other day. What a joy. Me, Joseph Elias, and him. We used to be tight. Here we are, old men, driving down the street together, talking about the Lord. 
Not how we scored the night before or anything else. Wow. What a difference. What a joy. Hmm. He was taken to heaven miraculously. A parallel to the rapture of the church. Not a type, because the New Testament doesn't say it's a type, but a parallel. That's how we will be removed when he comes for his church. Luke 21, 36 says, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. That's the tribulation, great tribulation he's talking about. So we're looking for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking for Jesus Christ, not Antichrist. We're looking for the rapture. Enoch was a man who walked with God. Are you walking with God? Notice, secondly, we get the ministry of Enoch. We have to go all the way to the other end, New Testament, the book of Jude. One chapter, right before the book of Revelation. We have Jude, verse 14 to 16, that gives us uh, his ministry. Uh, in verse 14, Enoch is said to be a prophet of God. Now, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied. The seventh from Adam distinguishes him from Cain's son, as we've pointed out. The prophet of God was the mouthpiece of God, as we said, studying the minor prophets. They spoke for God to the people of God. And then secondly, at times they spoke about some future events prophetically. And they spoke as the mouthpiece of God to reveal the mind and the will of God and to rebuke and call the people of God to repentance. They had walked away from God. They had drifted. The book of Hebrews says don't drift. And so if you're not anchored, if you've ever been out on a boat and whatever, you've got to anchor or you're going to drift. There's currents all over, right? Same thing. Uh, Jeremiah 23, 21 says, I have not sent you prophets, yet they ran. I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. Do you realize there's a lot of false teachers in the church today? Do you realize the major denominations have gone heretical? The majority of them? Do you realize that the majority of Christian universities and Fuller Cemetery here, they're heretical? As you can see, I'm not politically correct. If you are following God, if you're examining the scripture, if you're studying, you are an enigma today. The prophet of God was not popular in the sinful world as he never is throughout all ages. The world was only 787 years in existence if there's no gaps in Genesis 5 when Enoch began to walk with God at the birth of Methuselah. The flood came in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month on the 17th day 1,656 years after creation, if there is no gaps, Genesis 7, 16. The godly line is evident. Seth, Enoch, Lamech, Noah. He also walked with God, Genesis 6, 9. What's the common denominator? He walked with God. That you like me, dislike me, isn't going to get you into heaven. Are you walking with God? The general condition of the world is just 
in just those 1,656 years of man's existence was that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts and heart was only evil continually or all the day, Genesis 6, 5. This is before the flood. Now, everyone up to that point knew God created the earth. They knew about Adam and Eve. They knew about the fall. They knew about the promise of redemption. They knew about everything. Didn't matter. They corrupted God. Romans chapter 1. They didn't want to retain him as God in their mind. Every generation knows. Every generation chooses. The man Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Genesis 6, 8. So if you want to study the doctrine of grace, don't go to the New Testament. Start in Genesis. Noah deserved hell. He found grace. Why? Because he walked with God. Notice verse 14 at the end in 15. Enoch prophesied about the Lord's second coming for judgment being the seventh from Adam. He prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You get the key word? Ungodly, ungodly, ungodly. God isn't some righteous prude. God is holy. He can't condone to sin or to evil with any type of permission. If he did, then he couldn't be God. He couldn't be holy. He couldn't be good. He couldn't be kind. It contradicts his attributes. Now, if Jude had not qualified this judgment about the second coming of Christ, we would have interpreted to mean the antediluvial judgment that destroyed the entire world, except for Noah's sons and their wives. But he makes it very clear and very direct in the context. So he interprets, he gives the interpretation, the commentary of Genesis and Enoch, Right in the New Testament. The new always interprets the old. Simple, simple principle. Okay? If you're not a good spiritual hound dog, you will go up spiritual rabbit trails. There's a lot of things that people say that is biblically accurate and right when they're studying a chapter or a text. But often it's wrong in the context. So for you to be a good steward of the word of God, you have to read the verse, the chapter, the book, know how it fits. So it's in context. You must stay on the path. I don't care how much you pay for that hound dog. If you pay $10,000, $20,000, the true test is when you take him hunting. And if that dog goes up rabbit trails, you might as well shoot him. Somebody ripped you off. He must stay on the trail. You must ignore, resist the distractions to allow you to go from objective truth to subjective reasoning and subjective truth. The context here is the second coming. Can you imagine? I would have thought, well, he's talking about the first coming. No, it's the second coming that he's talking about here. Jude tells us that Jesus comes with 10,000 of his saints, his bride, at the second coming, with a purpose in mind. Notice he says, to judge, 
to execute judgment on all, all those who are on this earth at his return at the end of the Great Tribulation. Very clear in this context. To convict all who are ungodly, which means to convince and prove to be wrong. This is God's, God's love. He's constantly trying to convict and convince you, I, or people that don't know the Lord that they are sinners and that they're wrong. Now, you as parents know exactly what a hard time God has. When you're trying to convince your child that he was wrong. And you know when he just agrees with you to escape any further tongue lashing. Or when they connect the dots. God is trying to make you connect the dots. He wants the light to come on. He's trying to convince people that they are lost in sin and need of forgiveness because judgment is coming. There are many today, as will be in that day, that do not believe they are wrong. The number of people who will not be proven wrong by Jesus will be zero. Every man and woman, when they face the Lord Jesus Christ, they will know and they will know that they are absolutely wrong. Every person in hell this morning is a true believer. But it's too, there's no doubters in hell. None. But it's too late. The individual will be convict, convinced of all their ungodliness, ungodly deeds committed in an ungodly way. And of all their harsh things, ungodly sinners have spoken. Nothing will be hidden. Hebrews puts it like this. There is no creature hidden from his sight. And all things are open and naked to the eyes of him to whom we must, we must give an account. Hebrews 4.13. Jesus. Every person. If I'm not born again, if my sins have not been forgiven, put under the blood of Jesus, I'm going to have to give an account to the Lord personally. Who can, who can outweigh their evil by the goods they've done? And who even believes that that's even possible? Notice verse 16 of Jude. Enoch describes the individuals who fall under God's judgment. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust. And they, they mouth great swelling words, um, flattering people to gain advantage. Those who grumble, meaning murmur, one who um, discontentedly complains against God. Now, how ironic is it? They don't believe in God, but they complain against God. It's like the atheist. There's no one bigger fool than an atheist. He says there's no God, and he spends all his time trying to convince people that there's no God. So you're trying to convince people of something that doesn't exist. Who's the stupid guy? Amazing. Those who complain, meaning complain of one's lot, quarrelsome, discontented. You see, when you don't know the Lord, you think that somebody has sold you a short bill of goods. But when you're born again, you realize that you have more than you deserve and you're so grateful and thankful for what God has given you. It's just that simple. Do we have the capacity to be just like the sinner? Absolutely. 
That's why you need to grow. That's why you need to develop. That's why you need to walk. That's why you need to serve. That's why you need to be the church. That's why you need to be in the Word of God. That's why you need to pray to the Lord. You need to ask Him for wisdom. Pray for your wife. Pray with your wife. Pray with your husband. For your husband. Your children. Those who walk according to their own lust. Epithumia, which means self-will desires, cravings, longings for what is forbidden. And that doesn't just mean sex. It's only one aspect of it. The corruptness of having your own way, of deceiving people, of just pulling the wool over people's eyes, or living for yourself, and whatever it may be. Those whose words are great swelling, extravagant to deceive and allure. All of us understand that. We were in the world. You're going to sell something. You shine it up. You say, oh, yeah. It, it, oh, man, that runs great. I never have any problem with it. The guy drives it away. A block away, it breaks down. But you already got the money. You signed the pink slip, right? And then you brag to your friends. Yeah, you know, the transmission was kind of knocking. But we just put some sawdust in there. That's what we used to do. And, you know, they're not noisy. You know? Or you tell this gal, you know, oh, I just love you. You're the most important thing in my life. You, you want to get over on her. And you're just polite and a gentleman and all that. And once you conquer, then you're gone. That's the world, isn't it? Then we boast about it. Then we brag about it. Wow. It's not a pretty picture when you really look at humanity, is it? Those who flatter people in order to gain advantage of them, they're opportunists, liars, hypocrites, deceivers. They sound like politicians, don't they? <laughs> they have robbed us, deceived us, bankrupt us. Wow. They're supposed to be public servants. I don't think so. If you look at the world, it's not a pretty picture. But if you're, if you're a Christian, you can take it. You can understand this without being bitter, without being self-righteous. And when you see this picture, you're brokenhearted. You have compassion. You have direction. You have purpose. What a difference. You don't think you're better. I deserve hell. Jesus makes a difference. One day, as you know, Ahab gathered to himself 400 false prophets that told him to go up to Gilgal or Gilead and that God would deliver it to him. Um, but King Jehoshaphat, who had no business aligning himself with him, had enough good sense to ask if there was another prophet present that they might ask. And the king said, yeah, um, uh, Micaiah. But he hates me because he never says anything good concerning me. So Micaiah was warned and pleaded by the false prophet, come on, just go along with the program, say something good and everything. So when Micaiah came forth, he proceeded to go along with it sarcastically. And, um, and he told the king the truth. And he spoke how God would send an evil spirit to the mouth of the prophets for his own destruction. 
And then the king of Israel said, quote, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's sons, and say, Thus saith the king, Put this fellow in prison and feed him bread of affliction and water of affliction until I return in peace. Micaiah turned and said to him, If you ever return in peace, the Lord Yahweh has not spoken by me. And he said, Take heed, all you people. Second Chronicles 18. Whoa. You believe the word of God, what it says? You're not bitter. You're not self-righteous. You have godly fear and you have compassion for those that are perishing. That's what it's about, ladies and gentlemen. Nothing less. God has been faithful from the beginning to um, warn about the second coming judgment to the world. It's no secret. From Enoch to Moses and all the prophets, God's judgment at various times in the history of man is recorded undeniably. Noah's flood, Tower of Babel, uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, on and on. Listen to Second Peter 2, 4 and through 6. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards would live ungodly. Are you and I with excuse? None. The record is in the scriptures. Even non-believers know about the flood. Even non-believers know about Sodom and Gomorrah. Even non-believers know about the Tower of Babel. Even non-believers know about Samson. But they don't believe it. But they know. Enoch had the ministry of a prophet. You and I have a ministry to warn people of what's coming. But that they can escape that through the grace of God. Having their sins forgiven. What a high privilege. Thirdly, the message of Enoch. We find this in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. These are the only three passages where Enoch, again, we get all the information. In Hebrews 11, I just go back some books from, to go make a left. And you'll find Hebrews. 11, 5 through 6. Uh, in verse 5, he was a man of faith, it says. Faith is always based on what God has revealed to man. The acknowledgement that there is a God. That's faith. God's revelation. The submission to the will of God and dependency on the strength of God. A total commitment, understanding and believing who God is. Now, faith is not one's own ability to believe hard enough. Biblical faith is not natural. It is supernatural. Biblical faith is imparted by God and biblical faith is embraced by man. How that works is a mystery to an extent. But God's the initiator, we're the responder. Real simple, okay? Faith is not just saying you believe in God. 
Devils believe, but at least they tremble. There's not one devil in heaven. There's only one devil that still has access, Satan, book of Job, for whatever reason. But then he's cast down in the book of Revelation, okay, to the earth. Woe to the earth for the Satan has been cast down. Devil doctrines always reason and rationalize away compromise and judgment. Oh, come on, he's a God of love. Do you think he's going to make you suffer all eternity? Yes. But he doesn't do it, you do it. He offers an escape. He offers a pardon. But it's according to his word. Faith is believing wholeheartedly with all trust and confidence on what God has revealed in his word. It is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1. 1. You know this pulp is made of things you can't see, right? Atoms, protons, electrons, neutrons. There's more space in this pulpit than material. This pulpit has a potential of exploding. Scientists call it Nuclear glue that holds the atom together. No. It's Jesus Christ that holds it together. That's what we do when we split the atom. The atom bomb. You release the energy. Interesting. God's revelation was at times understood and at other times it wasn't. First Peter 1, 10 through 12 it says, Sometimes the prophets prophesy, say, yeah, this is for you generation. God says, boom, boom, boom. Other times they prophesy and they say, who's that to? I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. God's revelation does not have to be understood by man at all or at all times for it to be possible. Romans eleven thirty three to 36. All oh, the wisdom of God, how unsearchable it is. It's beyond our ways. It's incredible. Notice still in verse 5, he was translated due to his faith. So Enoch was taken from the earthly scene and removed to the place of comfort. Hades or Sheol. Jesus told us about that in Luke 16, 19-21. It was two compartments. Place of the bosom of the Father. Paradise. Place of comfort. The other side is the place of torment. Remember? Rich man, Lazarus. All right? Then after the cross, then paradise was taken to the third heaven. Over where God dwells. Enoch was the seventh from Adam. The number of completeness and perfection. Number six is the number of man. Seven, completeness. Number eight, new beginning. The numbers have an equivalence. Now, Enoch, which means dedicated, is a constant reminder that each of us is to be dedicated to walk with God on a daily basis. Not be a fair-weather Christian. Not when it's convenient. Not when I want to. I walk with Him by faith. Forget your emotions. Forget your feelings. What's the first question shrinks and sociologists and educators tell you? How do you feel? Who cares how you feel? Let me ask you a better question. How's your walk with God? Let your emotions catch up to your walk. You, 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 don't, you don't feel like you did at your honeymoon or when you first met your husband and wife every day of your married life, do you? If you do, come and see me. I need some advice. <laughs> but you're committed, right? One time my wife came home and she said, Look, how do you like I, I my hair? How do you like it? I go, I'm committed. Forget your emotions. The humanistic way is always, how do you feel? I'm going to slap them. 
You live your life by your feelings. You will destroy you and everybody else. Because you know why? You are the most important to you. The middle letter of sin is I. Maybe that's why our, the Mexicans say, ay, ay, ay. When we got it together. I am the problem. We're all strangers and sojourners. Constant reminder. We're to be in eternal fellowship with God. So you knock here. Um, it's kind of a parallel to the church that's going to be raptured, removed. Chapter 4 of Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 13 through 18. Especially verses 16 and 17. Enoch's a picture of that. God's goodness so we can be eternally in fellowship with him. Enoch's a clear reminder that we are strangers and sojourners on this earth. How quickly it goes. Just yesterday I was 18. Just yesterday. I remember it clearly. My kids were just one year old. My neighbor yesterday, I went walking. He goes, hey, how you doing? Hey, you go to that? Yeah, I went to Thanksgiving. The boys, he'd be with my son, this and that. He said, oh, how old is your son? I said, 38. He goes, whoa, 38. Overnight. My daughter's going to be 40. I'm old. <laughs> what happened? Notice verse 5. He did not see death. Enoch is the only one who escaped death out of the ten generations listed in chapter 5 of Genesis. Enoch is the first of two in the whole of Scripture who have not died physically and be translated. The other one is Elijah in 2 Kings 2. I believe that both of these men are the two witnesses in the book of Revelation chapter 11 because they have not died physically. It's appointed unto man that die once in the judgment. Hebrews says, 927. Physical death is separation of our spirit from our bodies and our soul. Spiritual death is eternal separation from God. So if I'm going to live with God, I have to make sure that while I'm in this body, I'm walking with God, right? You make your decision while you're here, not afterwards. If not, then men will be judged and women will be judged and be cast in the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 14 through 15. Because they rejected the forgiveness of sins. Now notice 5 there, at the end, he was translated by God. This is the promise of Jesus to his disciples in John 14, 1 through 3, the first mention of the rapture. Stop being afraid. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many abiding places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Where I am, there you may be also. I will come back to receive you to myself. You must make a distinction between receiving us to himself, 1 Thessalonians, the rapture, and coming back with him to set up the kingdom, 2 Thessalonians. Coming back for us, 1 Thessalonians. Coming back with him to set up the kingdom, 2 Thessalonians. Very, very clear. This is the blessed hope of Titus 2.13, the rapture. This is the meeting uh, of God's love in the clouds, 1 Thessalonians 4.15-17. through 17. And the word harpazo is to suddenly, violently. Of the 13 times it appears in the New Testament, every one of them, there's a translocation from one place to another. You have the sower went out to sow seeds so by the wayside. The birds came up and harpazoed it to the air. Earth to the, there. In the book of Acts, you also have um, Philip, who preached to the Ethiopian eunuch, baptized him, Acts 8.39, and he was harpazoed to Azotus, miraculously. Paul was caught up to the third heaven, saw and heard things not lawful to be uttered, Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2 and 4, harpazoed to heaven. Jesus, the man-child, was harpazoed to heaven, Revelation 12.5. Same words. All 13 times, suddenly, violently, 
located from one position to the other. That's the word for the rapture of the church. It comes from the Latin rapiri. The, harp, the Greek word is apostle. Simple. So he had the testimony of pleasing God before he was translated. Verse 5 says he walked with God. He willed to do the will of God. He walked the works and he worked the works of God and he worshiped God. That's what he did day to day. He was welcomed into the presence of God finally. That's what we do by the grace of God. But notice also he left us the principle of life with God. It's found in verse 6. First, it is impossible to please God apart from faith, trusting God's revelation for, or, um, of himself to man. The first part, 11. Second principle, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the reward of those who diligently seek him. So he must believe that he is the existence from all eternity. The second principle. The third, as I said, that he is the reward of those who diligently seek him. Is recorded clearly for us. Three important principles. Therefore, the people who walk by faith, not by sight. One put it this way. Sometimes I'm sad. I know not why. My heart is more distressed. It seems the burdens of this world have settled on my heart. And yet I know, I know that God, who does all things right, will lead me thus to understand, to walk by faith, not sight. And though I may not see the way he's his plans for me to go. The way seems dark to me just, but, oh, I am sure he knows. Today he guides my feeble step. Tomorrow's in his sight. He has asked me to never fear, but walk by faith, not sight. Someday the mist will roll away. The sun will shine again. I'll see the beauty in the flowers. I'll hear the birds refrain. And then I'll know my father's hand has led the way to light because I place my hand on his and walk by faith, not sight. The gospel declares that God sent the Son, Jesus, to save us. John 3.16, he loved us. That's the motive. Whoever believes should not perish but everlasting life. The substitute for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What a deal. The mediator, only one between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, 5. The only name, Acts 4, 12, no one else. It's very clear, very simple, no one but Jesus Christ. Not Krishna, not Allah, not anybody but Jesus Christ. The word of God alone produces faith for the believer. Romans ten seventeen says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. To believe by faith Jesus paid the penalty of my sin by his precious blood. To believe by faith that Jesus can and will forgive me of all my sins. And to believe by faith that he will impart to me eternal life based on what he alone has done. That is faith. I believe God's revelation about himself, what he did for me, and what he wants to do for me. In me and through me. First Peter 1 Peter 1.7 says, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. First Peter 1 Peter 1.7. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. Faith. Faith in that. And so Enoch has a message for the believer. Ready? He was a man of faith. 
That's it. What great truth he has given to us. The man Enoch walked with God. The ministry of Enoch, he was a prophet. The message of Enoch, he was a man of faith. Now you think that might be applicable for us today? (laughs) I think so. Thank God. Lord, thank you for your goodness, your love. Deal with our hearts. And Lord, I thank you for every person here. You continue to minister to us, Lord, as we look to you and you alone. And so, Father, we thank you. We love you. And Lord, we pray for those who even over the internet, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God has brought you to be saved, to repent of your sins. Maybe it's your first time here. Maybe it's the last time. Maybe you throw your hundredth time. I don't know. God loves you. He wants you to repent of your sins to be born again. So right where you sit, you can accept Christ Jesus right now. This is your prayer of repentance. That he may forgive you of all your sins and give to you eternal life. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.